0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: The Athletic.
2: Totally football show. Today, blockbuster entertainment at the Etihad as Mara's attacks Paris blows up, while at the bridge it's Werner they're going to score and Havertz they got another, yet as Chelsea eventually put Real away? We look ahead to another All-English final, hear about Jose Mourinho's Roman conquest and check out the weekend's fixtures in the Premier League. Plus, into totally semi-final action. It's all coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello there, listener. Well, it's Thursday the 6th of May, and here with us on Totally Today we've got Duncan Alexander.
3: Hello, James.
2: Tom Williams is with us as well. Hello, James. And also, zonal markings, Michael Cox. I say zonal marking, but you'll be going man-to-man later on, (laughs) Michael, in the quiz, with me doing the marking.
4: (laughs) Yeah, very good. Yeah, looking forward to that.
2: Yeah, it's the first semi-final, so am I. Uh, Coxie will be taking on Sasha Gurionov. And of course, because it's the semi-final, we've made it even tougher, Michael. I don't know if anyone's broken that to you yet, but uh, even tougher. Anyway, more of that to come. Worth noting that also this week, it was the Champions League semi-finals. Chelsea completed their set of Madrid teams on Wednesday with a 2-0 win over Real Madrid. And same scoreline for Man City over PSG on Tuesday, which means an all-English Champions League final for the second time in three years, but with d- different two teams to last time, which is, it feels significant.
4: Yeah, I think it does. I think I think gradually the Premier League has become the dominant league in Europe again in terms of performances in European competition over the past few years. It's probably slightly overdue, I think, when you look at the budgets of the Premier League sides um, and the quality throughout the league. Um, and I think that the factor that's really swung it is just the quality of managers. I think since 2016, it's been obvious that almost every elite manager in European football has come to England Conte, Klopp, Guardiola, um, and now Tuchel. And, um, you know, I think on the basis of the Champions League, Chelsea and Manchester City have been the two strongest sides. And I think that's probably fair in league competition as well, in terms of since Tuchel took over. Obviously, Chelsea were not good before Christmas, and indeed Manchester City weren't good before Christmas. But I think they are the two strongest sides in Europe at the moment. Probably only Bayern could could come into that conversation. So, yeah, it's kind of fitting. And I think it does sum up the fact that English football now is, is quite dominant in Europe.
2: Mm. Well, we could get an all-English Europa League final as well. We're recording this Thursday morning. Uh, Duncan, is there a highly amusing or curious scenario which would see... English teams winning in the Cups, thus meaning that whoever finishes fourth doesn't make the Champions League, a la Spurs.
3: Yeah, Spurs could... I mean, there's a scenario where Spurs finish ahead of Chelsea in fourth, but Chelsea win the Champions League and Arsenal win the Europa League. And Arsenal and Chelsea, outside the top four, both get into the Champions League next season and, and Spurs mess out. So um, I, That would be the most Spurs thing ever, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I mean... it. It would be unfortunate and, you know, it would be also quite amusing to see, I think.
2: Not for Spurs fans, Duncan. No, but of course, the bottom line here is that you can have up to five teams in the Champions League from any one league, but no more than five.
5: I kind of feel like Spurs would would have reached their final form if that were to happen. You almost feel like the entire history of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club is has just been leading them to a situation whereby they... they deserve to qualify for the Champions League, but are denied by other teams doing better than them. And they just have to wind the club up, I think, then, and, you know,
2: find something to do with the stadium. Didn't it happen already before?
4: No, it happened in 2012 when Chelsea finished 6th or 7th, and obviously Spurs missed out having finished 4th, yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah, that would suggest they've already reached their final form in 2012, so what are we looking at now... now?
3: Spurs now are very different. You know they've got the new stadium with its magical NFL pitch. They've done all this stuff to to get to this point. Yet it still happens. I think I think the point still stands. To be honest, okay, um, it would be Spursier. It would be Spursier than 2012. It would be
2: Spursier. All right. Well, it would be very regrettable for them were they to stage that kind of a comeback.
5: The good news, I think, from Tottenham's perspective is that there is, isn't much chance of that happening.
2: Okay. Well, Chelsea and Man City will be facing off in Istanbul. A lot of people, after the uh, Englishness of the two contenders in the final was confirmed saying well let's not have it in Istanbul especially in the current kind of health circumstances getting uh, supporters to fly across to Turkey doesn't make much sense there's not long before the final I I totally get the health point of view I I would say though that against that given that it is two Premier League sides who'll be facing each other for I think the third time in two months at least it being in Istanbul will give it a European final flavour, whereas if it was at Wembley, it'd be a bit Carabao Cup, if you if you know what I mean.
4: Yeah, and they played at Wembley recently in the uh, FA Cup semi-final as well. I actually think that I mean maybe this wouldn't take priority, but I think there's a playoff final scheduled for that date, um, so Wembley is occupied, but i got to say, I think there is a, a good case for, for moving it to Britain. You could have it in uh, Millennium Stadium, for example, which has hosted the Champions League final before. I just can't really see the point of flying two teams across Europe to a country that is um, you know, not really in the same situation as England in terms of COVID. So I don't think it will happen. I think Turkey are very keen to, to not miss out again and UEFA haven't really made any noises. But I can't really see the, the point of having it in Turkey, really.
3: I mean, the counter argument is that team, you know, countries, cities bid for bid for it, and as you said, Michael, they they missed out last year, and it, it's kind of almost feels like they've just got to do it and get it over with, really. Otherwise, it's
4: why? Why
3: just have? Well, because it backs up all the other years then as well. Because then they well, have yeah, to but, roll.
2: But if you're Turkey and you've made whatever efforts, and I'm in no way specifying what I mean by that, to secure a Champions League final, it's presumably on the basis that you're going to have tens of thousands of supporters coming in. And they won't have tens of thousands of supporters coming in and, and the ones that do make it in they probably don't want anyway because of the health situation. Wouldn't you rather, as Istanbul, have it in a year's time when fingers crossed, we could actually have full stadium? Well they
5: are gonna they are looking to have some fans in the stadium though. I think I read this morning that it'd be upwards of twenty thousand fans. Um, presumably they would predominantly be local fans. And yes, there are, you know, compelling logistical reasons for for, for staging the game in the UK not least from the perspective of Chelsea and Man City fans but I, I I feel it would be slightly unfair to deprive Istanbul of this game for the second season running particularly as it looks like they're going to be able to get some, some fans in the venue
1: as well
2: Alright then Let's have a look then at how the two teams secure their passage to Istanbul Champions League semis next
1: You're listening to The Totally Football Show sponsored by Paddy Power and part of The Athletic Podcast Network can't say two shots for Nacho. They're in again here, Chelsea. It's Christian Pulisic. And finally it's in, And it's scored by Mason Mount, who's Chelsea through and through, who's come through the academy and he's just scored the goal to take Chelsea to Istanbul.
2: Chelsea 2, Real Madrid nil the scoreline Wednesday at the bridge. Madrid look menacing in their black hosiery, but... Chelsea's biggest adversary turned out to be their own finishing. Is that fair?
5: It threatened to be. Yeah, there was that spell uh, in the second half where Chelsea created so many chances and really good, clear-cut gilt head chances, and didn't take any of them. You know whether it was it was poor finishing or Thibaut Courtois pulling off a few saves, and you know because it's Real Madrid. Um, and, and because they only needed one goal to level the tie, you just thought Chelsea are going to pay for this. So actually, it was there was a form of justice to the fact they got the second goal because if they'd won that three or four nil, I don't think Madrid could have had any complaints. I mean, it was you know it was it was a, a tie that felt finely poised for a long time in terms of the scoreline, but were, you know Chelsea were 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 much much better than Madrid, and, and I think finally you know the, the fact that they ended up getting home quite comfortably um, you know reflected that.
3: It's one of those scenarios where fans watch that game, Chelsea fans, and be like, oh, Madrid are clearly going to capitalise on all these wasted chances. But often that doesn't happen. And they, I think, you know, 0-0 would have got Chelsea through, and they almost played like they were trying to get 0-0. I mean, the gap in XG, 3.9 versus 0.5, so 3.4 difference, that's the biggest ever recorded in, uh, in the XG era in a Champions League semi-final one-off game. So Sorry.
2: Duncan, sorry, that was so. The gap between the expected goals for Chelsea and the expected goals for Real Madrid was yeah. the biggest that you've ever had in a Champions League semi-final.
5: Yeah, and also, Duncan, can you just clarify when the XG era began, just so that we can really put
3: this um, in that will be back to 2014. I mean, don't you remember? That it's been I, 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 yeah, up. sorry, how, how could I forget? The sky, but yeah, I mean, so it's not a, an exhaustive list of Champions League semi-finals, but it does show just how dominant Chelsea were in that in that game in terms of right. at least in terms of creating chances.
2: But as you say, I think a lot of people are on the edge of their seats waiting for another Iniesta-esque moment to happen, which which only made the feel-good factor that much more heightened when Mason Mount finally did get the second and everybody piled on top of each other. And it was lovely that it was Mason who does seem to be one of the more likeable people in in the game.
5: Yeah, and also I think it was, it was a goal that, that showed this sort of nascent understanding that is that is taking shape between Chelsea's forward players. You know, Timo Werner's involved, uh, Pulisic is involved, Man obviously gets the finish in. And I think that that has been a feature of recent weeks. You know, we saw that last weekend in, in the win over Fulham. Okay, it was only Fulham rather than Real Madrid, but there is a complicity between those forward players. And all, although you know, we tend to think of Werner as being this big flop and, and Havertz as, as being someone who's really struggled to find his feet. We've seen in recent weeks that, you know, those players do seem to be getting on the same wavelength. Um, and yeah, that was, that was apparent uh, throughout the, the game against Real Madrid. You've got Pulisic to, to come off the bench, who, who slots in quite easily. Um, so yeah, I, th- I, think it, I think it was quite fitting that, that, that they combined for, for the goal that ended up uh, making the victory safe.
2: Will it be Giroud in the final, though? You know, just to kind of not mess about anymore.
4: <laughs> I, I, I doubt it very much. Um, I think he's he's stumbled upon roughly a familiar starting eleven now, hasn't he? He's changed a couple of things. Christensen's come in as the right-sided centre-back. As pretty Quest, I think in both legs was doing really well on the right. And it's just up front, I think what, there's probably one question mark. You know, in the front three, Mount's going to start. I think Werner is looking like he's going to start every game. So it's really just Havertz or Pulisic really is the uh, is the decision. And Ziyech as well has, has played well in a couple of the Champions League games as well. But uh, they look really good, Chelsea. And obviously City will start the the, the funest favourites. But I think Chelsea have been pretty much as good as them since Tuchel took over. I thought yesterday was the best I've seen Kante play in an attacking sense. Probably the best I've seen Jorginho play in a defensive sense. You know, that, that used to be a bit of a debate in the midfield, didn't it, when Sarri played that way? No one's really talking about that now because I think Tuchel's perfected it more than Sarri or Lampard did. So, yeah, I think they look really solid and, and the goals against record is just incredible. I mean, if you take away that slightly crazy West Brom game when they were huh. down to 10 men for long periods, I mean, they've, they've
3: conceded something like 0.2 goals a game in, in all the other games, which is just incredible, really. 18 clean sheets in 25 games for Tuchel, which, you know, I'm no defensive expert, but that sounds good. So, and uh, it's
2: the teams they've done it against as well, which is... Phenomenal. Weirdly, as you say, the, the one team that did split them open was, was West Brom. What, what about Real Madrid then? Their first defeat in 20 games in all competitions, the fallout only just beginning. Much of it centered around one Eden Hazard, who hoisted his own kind of metaphorical Wales Golf Madrid banner after the final whistle by sharing a laugh with his former teammates in frankly disgraceful scenes. You've probably seen the clip maybe on social media from El Kiringuito Television. I may have mispronounced that, in uh, Madrid, which was the same place that Fiorentina Perez went to basically explain to the little people what he was doing with the, the Super League. Anyway, the magnificent reaction to, to Hazard with this, this ashen-faced presenter saying, Muy grave, not another second should he ever play for Real Madrid.
3: Incredibly... Doomy, dramatic music as well playing. It's, I mean, it, I'm not saying they were looking for a scapegoat, but it does feel slightly like they were looking for a scapegoat. It's you
5: know, a very amusing really, um, overreaction. I mean, like you say, that the clip itself uh, is, is a, a terrific watch. I mean, you know, right. preposterously doom-laden. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I, I think it does speak to a, a facet of Aiden Hazard's personality, that is perhaps one of the reasons why he hasn't quite had the career that, that um, he might have had. That it fundamentally, I mean, you know, laughing at the final whistle is not a sign that you don't care about the results, you don't care that your team have just lost, but it's the sort of thing that slightly more serious players wouldn't allow themselves to, to be seen doing. And it's one of the things that makes Hazar likeable, I think. I mean, he's a wonderful footballer, he seems quite a likeable guy. He obviously doesn't take himself that seriously. You wonder if he did take himself slightly more seriously, whether he might not have, um, you know, people occasionally asking questions about why he hasn't really fulfilled his potential in a way that he might have otherwise
3: done. Well, I think he, he's almost like the sort of player that shouldn't have signed for Real Madrid. He, at Chelsea, he sort of said that I love football, but you know, it's only a game at the end of the day. That's, that's not the attitude you, you kind of take to Real Madrid, where it is, you know, life and death and everything. So, I mean, the the fact is he didn't play well in either either leg, but he's clearly not completely fit either. So,
2: As for Real Madrid in general, does it look like they've got a proper rebuild job on now with uh, all the money they don't have in their bank account? And also UEFA now making noises that they... Juventus, Barcelona and Milan are all facing potential suspensions of up to two years from European competition if they don't hurry up and give up on the Super League business.
4: Yeah, I think the real uh, the rebuild has been coming for a couple of years. Um, and I think, I mean, I've never been a huge fan of Zidane, but I think he's actually done a really good job to get this squad through to the Champions League semi-final and have them still in contention to win La Liga because you look at it and they just don't have attacking options. I mean, Hazard is clearly not the player of of the Chelsea years because of his physical condition they don't have that many other options I mean Vinicius is fast I think his display against Liverpool flatters him really he doesn't play that well week in week out and when you've got a midfield of Casemiro and Cruz and Modric who can still dominate the ball but you need so much pace and dynamism further forward and the only player that really is anything close to top class is Benzema who again is a player who has depended upon players running off him for the last few years so I think the the squad is just not good enough. They've lost world class players in terms of them departing. They've lost world class players in terms of probably Marcelo, Ramos, and Modric. I would say are no longer uh, no longer on the level of before. And I mean, I just wasn't surprised Chelsea completely outplayed him over two legs. I mean, the only the only disappointment from Chelsea's point of view is, I mean, they should, they could have been out of sight after half an hour of the first leg. They could have won the first leg three or four nil, and the second leg three or four nil. I mean, they were so far better than Real. But I don't think it's Dan's fault. I think he's got a bad squad and has suffered from injuries all year. And has actually done quite a decent job with them this year. The problem with Madrid, though, is that they've already started the rebuild. The summer before
5: last, they spent an absolute fortune to sign Eder Militão and Ferland Mendy and Aiden Hazard. You know, Luka Jovic, who people don't even mention they spent an absolute fortune to sign those players and they were the players who Zidane had asked for and i think that's what will be troubling this team clearly is a team that is in need of a, a bit of an overhaul but that overhaul you know theoretically began you know coming up to 2 years ago and we're not yet sort of seeing the fruits of it partly because a lot of that money was spent on on the wrong sorts of players i mean hazan jovic uh, you know currently two of the biggest flops in in real madrid's recent history uh, i think one thing that has that has really uh, hampered them this season has been injuries they, they've had an absolute slew of injuries in all sorts of different positions you know we saw that last night Sergio Ramos did not look you know anywhere near at sort of full pace uh, you know Hazard we know uh, has been struggling with injuries that the whole way through but you know given that we know Madrid don't have much money to spend you do sort of wonder what the solutions are there because the, the players who are supposed to re this squad are already theoretically there.
2: Against all of that probably Madrid fans would point out that they did get to a Champions League semi-final and could quite possibly win the Liga Uh, again. Duncan?
3: I think uh, a couple of things. Jurgen Klopp must be feeling really um, upset that he maybe chose Keita to play the first 40 minutes of Liverpool's first leg. When you see how much Chelsea dominated over the two legs, Liverpool should have beaten Madrid, I think. Um, And also, for the rebuilding stuff, I mean, that was essentially Perez's point, wasn't it, when the ESL didn't work out was that I wanted to get Mbappe and Haaland this summer and now I won't be able to. So and you think about it, the ESL was essentially the three biggest teams in Spain and Italy joining the Premier League in in essence, kind of and I think this week has shown that you know they're not quite on on that level.
2: There you go. Chelsea making their third Champions League final appearance. The previous two both went to penalties, and both of the previous two came after Chelsea had sat their manager during the season. In fact, Richard Martin points out this will be the fifth time that Chelsea have binned off their boss midway through the season but still reached a European final. Count them down with me. 98, Cup Winners' Cup with Gullit and then Viali. 2008, Champions League with Mourinho and then Grant. 2012, André Villas-Boas and Roberto Di Matteo. 2013, Europa League with Di Matteo and Rafa Benitez. And of course this year with Lampard and Tuchel. Also... Chelsea will be in both the men's and the women's Champions League final, which is pretty brilliant stuff. Tuchel being slightly politer post-game than Emma Hayes was uh, at the end of her (laughs) semi-final. Kukul, in fact, with the sweetest smile, it was, uh, I think, really delightful. After, he, he always looked quite peevish for me on the PSG sidelines, and perhaps understandably so, but he, he's having a whale of a time, and becoming the first manager to reach back-to-back Champions League finals with different clubs a day after the club that fired him got knocked out in embarrassing fashion by Phil from Stockport and company must have been <laughs> especially
3: sweet. I mean, it's funny with Chelsea, it always amuses me that their last two European trophies have come under Maurizio Sarri and Rafa Benitez, two managers that they essentially detest. Um, so obviously Tuchel's currently more popular than that, but Chelsea, you know, they've always had no qualms in changing the managers, that sequence you, you read out shows, you know, mm. and, and it, and some clubs really kind of fetishise the, the longevity of managers, sort of Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, because, because they've had success with kind of dynasty managers, I suppose. But Chelsea are like, it's not working out. Let's just get rid and it, it works. I think
5: what Chelsea and City getting to the final this season shows is the importance of finding a dynamic at the right time during a season. I mean, two polar opposites in terms of their approaches um, you look at the fact, you know, Guardiola's been there for, what, coming up for five years. Tuchel arrived mid-season. But in both cases, these are teams that have settled on a successful way of playing midway through the season. Guardiola sort of switching to this strikerless system at the back end of December. Chelsea switching to this back three uh, with the wing-backs when Tuchel came in at the start of January. And it's that sort of momentum that has, that has carried them to these finals. Um, and that, I mean, that's something that sort of stood out for me a little
2: bit this week. Well, let's talk about Man City and how they got through to Istanbul. Let's do
0: that next. Uh, Harry, is there any truth in the rumours that you're off to Spain in the summer? Uh, 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 sorry, me, uh, me no hablo ingles. Uh, what, about one of the Manchester clubs? Uh, well, you know, it's... Uh... Well, Harry, what about my source who says you're keen to stay at Spurs? <laughs> uh, can we keep the questions sensible, please? Kane's future at Spurs remains uncertain, but you're guaranteed to get money back as a free bet if one leg of your 4 fold hacker lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1-5 on each leg. Online exclusive, exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T and
1: C's apply, 18+. Begumbleaware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kaye and the very best football writers around. Oubliez pas les Navas, Césinchenko et le premier sur le ballon. L'arrivée de Bruyne, l'arrivée de Kevin De Bruyne, c'est contré par Florenzi.
0: Ah, Riyad Mahrez derrière. Ah, c'est terrible. La plus mauvaise entame possible pour le PSG. Riyad Mahrez encore lui.
2: Man City 2-0 winners over Paris Saint Germain on Tuesday night and looking very comfortable while doing it. PSG with no shots on target whatsoever because they didn't have. Kylian Mbappé, how much difference would that have made? Uh, that's perhaps a talking point. Other talking points about this game, well, we've we've heard a lot about Phil Foden's performance. We've heard about the Edison pass for the first goal, the Diaz blocks throughout, aka Ruben from Amadora or Edison from Asasco to give them their full, full names. What else, though, stood out for you about City's performance?
4: Well, I mean, their task was keep a clean sheet. or In fact, their, their task was really not to concede two goals. Even if they conceded one, they would have gone through. And they were never massively troubled. I think there's a few factors in that. They brought in Fernandinho, who I thought did exactly what you want from a holding midfielder in this game, which wasn't, which isn't necessarily what you usually want from a holding midfielder in a city game. He just made it as scrappy as possible. Um, and I think that really worked in breaking up the game. Obviously, the centre-backs have been spoken about a lot, but I thought the full-backs were very good as well. I mean, Kyle Walker in both games, I think, has been solid. And, and I've it's become a bit of a cliche to talk about his recovery pace, but there was a moment midway through the first half where he made an error and then just sprinted ahead of Neymar to get the ball. And I think that kind of summed up why he is so useful. And on the other side, Zinchenko, I thought his introduction really changed the first leg. Um, and he was excellent here, both in a defensive. So, I mean, Di Maria was absolutely terrible up against him. I think as badly as I've ever seen him play. And then, of course, Zinchenko was in a remarkably advanced position to get the long ball from Edison for the, for the first goal. I must say, I think people have been a little bit harsh on on PSG. I know they lost their heads at the end, but you can only really analyse the second leg in relation to the first leg. And I thought they are just quite unlucky in the first leg. I thought that was I thought City did quite well to come away with 2-1 from that. I thought that could have been a goalless draw, and it would have reflected the game quite well. Um, and then they would have gone to the Etihad with a fighting chance of maybe a score draw. So I didn't think PSG were quite as bad as the scoreline made it look. Um, but overall, yeah, City were the best side over two legs.
2: Right. City looking astonishingly complete.
5: You know, I, it goes back to what I was saying about this, this system they found. Um, it, it just gives every single player so many options when they find themselves in possession. I, I can't think of many examples in, in recent football history where a team has, has managed to outnumber their opponents so consistently in so many different areas of the pitch. Uh, and, you know, the principal reason for that is that they're playing with six midfielders and no strikers. Mm. Uh, and it means that when they decide they're going to flood forward and create overloads, it happens very easily and very naturally. And when they decide they want to take the sting out of the game, um, you know, and, and, and retreat a little bit and, and, you know, take their foot off the pedal, they find that very easy to very easy to do as well because they have so many players around the ball. And, um, yeah, there was a line in... Um, in a piece written by Vincent Deluc, who is the uh, chief football writer at L'Equipe, cited by our very own Jack Lang in the piece that he wrote on the game for The Athletic. Uh, And Deluc said that, you know, what you saw was that at Manchester City, uh, the transfers act in service of the philosophy, uh, and at PSG, transfers are the philosophy. Um, And, you know, the meaning there is that every player that City have bought in recent years has been a player that, that Guardiola has requested because he had in mind a very specific... Uh, role or a very specific hole that needed filling whereas at PSG you know it's been much more scattergun it's you know sign big names and then try and fill the gaps as best you can and I agree with with Michael's point I I don't think PSG apart from the you know pathetic scenes of the last 15 minutes in in terms of the contest they were brilliant in the first half of the first leg they're obviously going to miss Kylian Mbappe who was their key player you know it was the difference basically in uh, in the key games against Barcelona and Bayern Munich in the two previous rounds. Um, but, you know, when you take Mbappé out of the team, there isn't a collective, there isn't a system that the team can just sort of slot back into. They are dependent on those individualities. When they don't have them, they suffer. Whereas at Man City, because that that playing system is so well established, you know, they're able to go and, and steamroller teams like they did against PSG. I
3: mean, I think we've mentioned the defence for City, but Ruben Diaz, I mean that was a kind of glamour centre half performance. There was a couple of blocks he made with his face and, you know, didn't kind of brush his hair, but didn't it was it was very impressive. I mean, that's nine blocks from City in that game is the most they've ever done under Cariola, which shows the approach that that Michael mentioned with Fernandino trying to make it scrappy, but it was the sort of defensive performance you don't necessarily think of when you think of, of Guardiola in the Champions League. And lo and behold, it's got him through to his his first final for 10 years. And the other thing that leapt out to me was just how good Riyad Mahrez was over the two legs and how good N'Golo Kante was for Chelsea. And it's five years now since Leicester won the league. And obviously they were the two, along with Vardy, the two key players. And, um, you know, the ripples of that Leicester title win are still being seen. I think a lot of the ESL stuff comes from from that season um, and it really the longer time goes on it feels like that campaign was is more and more pivotal in the kind of you know the shape of the the modern game
2: yeah it's still still a, a victory that Leicester one that resonates throughout European football it was nice to see actually Sampdoria the other day on the anniversary of, of Leicester picking up the uh, the title saying that Leicester can't comment on this because it was in the it was over the weekend when all that social media blackout was going on, but we'd like to commemorate for them the day they achieved one of the greatest stories we've ever seen in football, which was, was nice. Uh, City, this uh, Tuesday then, with that victory over Paris Saint-Germain, making 11 straight wins in the Champions League, which is the most by an English team in the history of the European Cup or Champions League. And it means also their one win off equaling the European record, which is held by Real Madrid with 12 wins. Of course, they could do that in the final if they beat Chelsea, what do you think? You've got your Leicester connection there. You've got your Mount v Foden. You've got the fact that Chelsea did beat Man City in the FA Cup semi-final just last month. 1-0 with a goal from Ziyech. A lot of people felt that uh, Tuchel outfoxed Pep in that cup semi-final. when, I, If I recall correctly, he played with Kepa in goal just to show that he could. But what did Tuchel do? And is that of any great relevance to the game at the end of this month in Istanbul?
4: I don't think it is of relevance because City rotated a lot of players for that game. I was surprised at the extent they rotated, to be honest. Um, And they're playing each other this weekend, aren't they? So, if there's going to be a... Yeah, this game will probably be more relevant than the the semi-final uh, based upon strength of teams.
2: Well, I'm just wondering, will they tweak their tactics? Will they camouflage their stratagems, stick the keppers in goal, exactly? To, you know, confuse the other manager, to throw them off their scent?
5: I kind of feel like City are more likely to heavily rotate than Chelsea because, you know, the, the title is basically sewn up uh, and Chelsea Chelsea's need for points is, is greater than City's. So I suspect it will be, I mean, obviously it's a game that we're going to focus on even more closely because it is a dress rehearsal for the Champions League final. But, you know, I, I think both managers will will we'll rotate a bit. And yeah, you look back to the, the FA Cup semi-final. And it was basically a Man City B team, um, uh, you know, sort of compared to the team that you put out against uh, against PSG. So yeah, I'm not sure we can read too much into that. And I suspect we won't be able to read too much into the game on Saturday either.
2: Okay. Chelsea have lost four of their last five visits to the Etihad. We'll see what happens in that one. A victory for City will uh, confirm them as Premier League champions for the third time in the last four seasons, but a defeat for Chelsea could have big ramifications for their top four status. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. Duncan, was there something you wanted to add about this game coming up Saturday tea time?
3: No, I was just going to, looking ahead to the, the final and thinking how you mentioned it um, in the intro, that you know Mount versus Foden I think is going to be a All narrative right. that's really heavily... Looked at. There was a really nice moment when Foden got substituted late on in the game and for Aguero and he kind of gave him a little grin and, you know, Foden was a ball boy at, at City when Aguero was in his pomp and it's a kind of nice little chronological, uh, you know, development.
2: John Sands asks, will Gareth Southgate be excited to see so many of his top young players in the finals of the biggest European tournaments or worried at how little time he'll ha- therefore have with them before the Euros start?
4: Yeah, the, the latter. I think that's a real big problem, actually. There's going to be such little time between the Champions League final and the Euros. And it's going to be... I mean, obviously it's been a really congested season anyway, but I think we, we're all going to be talking about who the first choice eleven is for England, but am not sure there'll be such thing as a first choice eleven for this year's Euros. I mean, with five subs, 26-man squads, the format means you can afford to have a couple of off days in the group. Um, And obviously this Champions League final as well. I just think there's going to be a lot of rotation. So, uh, no, I don't think it's ideal for England. I think it's a bit of an issue.
2: Well, we've got three weeks between now and Istanbul to talk up that big showdown. And, of course, uh, this Saturday's game to give us pointers. Uh, Next up, though, let's move away from the Champions League games and on to the other midweek
0: bombshell. Keep listening for Michael Cox versus... Sasha Gorianov in the Totally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. And we apologize for any bad language you may hear. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com Slash Courtside
1: to learn more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, smart speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson.
2: Ave Mu was Gazeta de la Sports front page on Wednesday, and the first of a full seven pages that Italy's most popular newspaper dedicated to the arrival of the special one. Il Romanista, the kind of bible of the Roma fans, went with. Demi Jose, which is lovely if you're familiar with uh, Roma's magnificent, if unofficial, club anthem. One man who is, is James Horncastle, who joins us now. Hello, James. Hello. Hello. James, so Emperor Moo, but will he be arriving <laughs> fully clothed this time?
6: <laughs> well, that's the question, isn't it? What's he signed up for? Because uh, Roma made a loss of 204 million uh, in October. Uh, we're still in the pandemic, or at least they still are in Italy where the vaccine rollout's been a little bit slower. They'll probably make another 150 million loss um, before the end of the season. Um, and that's before Jose even arrives. So what are they going to clothe him with? Uh, we'll have to see, James.
2: Mm. They have got new owners. So this might point to them making a more vigorous attack on the transfer market over the summer. I mean, This is, I think, This will be something that supporters of Spurs and Man United have all been through in the past. This feeling of, yes, it it hasn't worked out for him of late, but it could be different this time. And Such is his charisma that even though you've just seen him come apart, you know, fail spectacularly at Spurs, you still think that, don't you?
6: Look, I mean, his reputation is still more intact in Italy than it is in other countries, um, just because he left on such a high in 2010, Winning the treble, which uh, no Italian team uh, had ever achieved, and no Italian team has done it uh, since either. Um, and yes, his charisma uh, yeah, has a lot of Italians eating out of the palm of his hand. I would say, um, and there's a feeling that, you know, maybe Italian football hasn't moved on all that much in the last ten years. Much like Jose Mourinho's tactical evolution hasn't moved on in the way that some of his contemporaries have. Uh, let's say Pep Guardiola, who made the Champions League final uh, this week. Um, so in that respect, you, know, you have people making a case that, well, it could work, but my oh my, there's an awful lot of work to do Um, At Roma, Jose Mourinho, of course, was the uh, first manager of a Super League club to get the sack and then the Super League fell apart and looks like he's going to be one of the first coaches, James, to work in the Conference League as well. That is if Roma can qualify for that because uh, they're not even guaranteed of that at the moment with Sassuolo breathing down their necks.
2: Why have they hired him?
6: Well, because they believe um, that he is a winner. Uh, if you read the statement that they put out, um, you know, I think they acknowledge that aside from at Spurs, he's always won a trophy. Um, what baffled me was this idea that he is the man to, um, to base a long-term project around uh, that could sort of inculcate a winning culture at the club. I mean, even in his heyday, Mourinho never stayed at clubs more than two or three seasons his tenures have got shorter and shorter, um, and his last three jobs um, as well. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I think in some respects, uh, he is a name who transcends the sport. Right? Even if you are not interested in football, um, casual fans know who Jose Mourinho is and associate him with being very successful. I think if you're new owners uh, from the United States who, uh, you know, have tried to learn more about the game over the last nine months. I think there's still it's still early days for them, and I think in that context, yes, it's a great statement of ambition from them. Uh, In some respects, it's the biggest name that Roma have had as a as a coach really since Fabio Capello in 1999. But Capello joined when he was still kind of in his prime. Um, You know, I I think we, we we we've discussed at length whether you know Jose is well past his prime. It feels it doesn't mean he's a He's no longer a competitive manager, but certainly the the expectations that he set um, in uh, really up until what 2015, um, he's fallen short of them. And I think when you when you appoint a guy like Jose Marino, the natural thing is to expect a title challenge. Uh, it's to expect spending, and I I kind of think, well, can we really expect both of those things uh, in this in this context?
2: Matas Hedenborg would like to know if we can expect Daniele Di Rossi joining Jose's backroom staff?
6: Well, we'll have to see. Uh, I mean, Daniele is, is now part of Roberto Mancini's staff uh, with uh, with the national team. I suppose uh, it's still still early days, uh, really. I, I imagine Mourinho will be putting his, his staff together. He's always tended to like, uh, or at least in the past, like to have someone on his coaching staff who was at the club but uh, I think it's kind of too early really to um to say that with any certainty. I certainly I haven't spoken or texted Daniele, so I All have right. no idea quite frankly.
2: And, and crucially, he hasn't texted you yet either. Which well have, I mean he just
6: done. he has just gone out of hospital again, this right. is the other thing from his uh, he had a particularly bad uh, bad case of of covid nineteen so um again i think his focus will be on getting healthy and, and uh, he's doing his coaching badges he's at Covachana this weekend doing his his coaching license there was so.
2: there was a great picture of him what what a wonderful shot of the aula the kind of uh, lecture hall at yeah. Covachana with Del Piero and Christian Vieri yeah,
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah Bobo is head coach uh, i'm not sure i'm not sure how i I would feel about that but um certainly he does he's been doing his bobo tv after, you know, sort of every Champions League game on Twitch, getting into into the great tactical sort of granular detail that Michael Cox would enjoy with uh, with his fellow panellists, what uh, Nicola Ventola, Antonio Cassano and Daniele Adani. So maybe that's where he's he's got a real taste for it.
2: All right, nice one. Well, we'll have much more on Mourinho's appointment and all that kind of thing, of course, when we speak to you next, uh, James, in Tuesdays. Next Tuesday is a European edition of the Totally Football Show, So Heidenborg Hedenburg Tune in to that one. For now, many thanks, James. We'll catch up with you soon. Pleasure. James Horncastle there on Tuesday's Bombshell News. Roma, of course, had been in talks with Maurizio Sarri, but there was a meeting with Mourinho just before the first leg of the Man United semi-final, and uh, the Freekins apparently very much swept up in in his charm. And uh, as James says... uh, worldwide reputation. Anyway, we'll see how that pans out. Next up, anyway, let's look ahead to what's happening this weekend in the Premier League.
1: This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Premier League. Title
2: could be decided on Saturday tea time. Bottom three by Monday evening. And top four races, pretty much all we've got left for us in these last three weeks. Let's see. Man United are second. They have a nine-point cushion over fifth place with a game in hand. So pretty much set for the Champions League, which they could also reach for the Europa League. Leicester lie third. They're on 63 points. They're five points clear of fifth. Chelsea are fourth. They're only three points clear of West Ham in fifth. Spurs are sixth. They're five points off the top four, and Liverpool are seventh of all seven points away, but with a game in hand. If Chelsea lose at Man City, which is what they often do this weekend, it could get very interesting indeed because those next three teams are all facing reasonably winnable games. West Ham at home to Everton, Liverpool against Saints, and Spurs with the trickier trip to Leeds. West Ham-Everton, should we start with that? Should be a belt at this, no? As David Moyes looks to do the double over his old club. Anyone else excited about this game or not so much?
5: Yeah, reasonably excited about this game, I would say. Um, West Ham, who have the second best home record in the division, and Everton, who are much better away from home than they are at home, um, somewhat inexplicably, given the absence of supporters. You know, we've spoken before about whether... West Ham will have the, the stamina to sort of uh, stick it out in this top four race. We know that their fixtures are, are, are favourable. They're also getting players back from injury. We saw that uh, in the most recent win away at, at Burnley. Uh, Michel Antonio back from his hamstring injury, getting a couple of goals. Uh, Aaron Cresswell back in the team as well. Everton, again, um, I think, what was it, one in the last six or something like that, and uh, you know lost at home to Villa last time out. And because they've had this game in hand for a while, you find yourself looking at the league table and thinking, well, if they win their game in hand and then you know things go their way? They could get into that you know the, the top five, maybe even the top four picture. But it just it hasn't happened. I suspect that uh, that the, the yeah the chances of them finishing the top four probably vanished quite a long time ago. Um, but yeah, you know a, a team who can who can cause problems on the day. So it should be a, should be, should be an interesting game.
2: Well, what about Liverpool and their game in hand? They're taking on Saints. Uh, In the reverse of the fixture that saw Ralph Hasenhuttle in tears back at the start of the year, 4th of January, when his Saints beat Liverpool. Back then, it was a Liverpool team who were on top of the Premier League. Since then, Saints have won only two of the following 16 Premier League matches. Crikey. That'll bring a tear to his eye in an entirely different sense. It was was a very striking scene, that, wasn't it? Him down on his haunches, blubbing, you know, from the emotion of it uh, back on the 4th of January.
3: Yeah, it was um it was strange, given he's a man who suffered two nine nil defeats and taken them on the chin. Um <laughs> but but yeah, I mean obviously obviously Hasen-Hood was the uh, the Alpine Klop, but it's an interesting game because both managers this season have probably probably realised that their their approach and their squads have maybe come up a, to a certain point in their development or evolution that that probably necessitates some fairly big changes this summer. So I don't know what the COVID restrictions mean for for managers sharing red wine in the, in the traditional way after games. But you'd imagine they would have quite an interesting chat after this match.
2: In the pantheon of surprising emotional kind of moments in football, where would you put a house and at St Mary's that time? Is it is it up there with Juninho and Borough's relegation? Is it does it have the same emotional sting of Gaza at, at, in at the 1990 semi final?
5: Well, if, if we're judging it in terms of how surprising it was, it's got to be right up there because it, it, you know, you would expect someone to cry uh, in Gaza situation mm. or Juninho's situation, not so much in Hasenhutel's situation. It reminded me of a, a post-match interview that, that Jordan Ayu gave when he was playing for Socho and I think they were having a bit of a tricky season and they'd recently appointed Hervé Renard as head coach and he'd sort of turned things around. And I was asked after I think he'd sort of scored a late winner or something, and he was asked after the game, you know, what what the coach had come in and changed, and he sort of talking, you know, started talking about you know how how he'd had a big impact and what a great guy he was to play for, and then he just started crying, just the emotion of it all sort of like consumed him.
4: The coach, he me fait beaucoup confiance, Et je dois le rendre sur le terrain. J'ai pas beaucoup de chance d'avoir un coach comme ça, mais faut que je le remercie. Merci Jordan.
2: I think one of the things is when you, when you just had 90 minutes and you're, you're physically drained, but also mentally drained uh, from that kind of thing, it, it, it must mean that your emotions just come tumbling out sometimes. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more, to be honest.
3: For me, the most surprising tear in football is the championship where anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs>
5: That's true. Slight tangent, but speaking of surprising tears, does, does anyone watch the Great British Throwdown? so what the great british throwdown it's called the great british throwdown i think that's like a pottery term and there's this and yeah throw when you
2: throw a pot it's not kind yeah of they, there a, you
5: go you throw a pot yeah. and there's this judge and he's like you know i don't know who he is but he's some you know i assume he's perfectly well qualified and often when he's asked to judge something he'll be looking at like a piece of pottery and he'll be like you know what i really like this bowl and it happens in every <laughs> single show I'd what look channel it is if, this it, i think it's on like sky arts or something like that
2: right I mean, any programme with great British in the title for me is already
3: off, off to a winner, but Duncan. This the most surprising news about a Potter since Brighton's XG, I've heard this. OK, season. very
2: much on message, thanks, Duncan, for that. Back to the Premier League we go. Uh, let's not forget about Ryan Mason's feel-good freewheeling Tottenham Hotspur, who are very much in the top four race as they travel to Leeds. They've just beaten the other Yorkshire Premier League side 4-0. Have Spurs. It's almost twenty years since Leeds last won a league game against Spurs. Of course, they've not been in the same division for a, a bulk of that. But
3: hmm. talking of long time, Belsa yes. became a, a proper foot manager pretty much at the exact same time Ryan Mason was was born in nineteen ninety. Okay. So they can they can compare that. But um, I mean Gareth Bales, I guess the story here. Um, particularly as he's playing a team that have actually scored quite a high proportion of long-range goals this season. Obviously, Bale ended the pre-XG era uh, in his final season in his first spell at Spurs by scoring more goals from outside the box than any player in Premier League history in a single season. So maybe we'll just see a succession of 30-yard screamers in this game.
2: Like a tennis match or something. Mm. But not very much like a tennis match.
3: But with less Robinson squash on offer at the sidelines.
2: I see I see. Uh, who else is in that top four race? That's kind of it. Uh, Leicester, we could mention, they're going to be taking on uh, Newcastle. That's a big game for Leicester because, of course, they've got tough games coming up afterwards.
5: And they dropped points against 10-man Southampton last time out, which was uh, not ideal preparation for this tricky run-in they've
2: got. Right. So it's Newcastle at home this weekend, then Man United away, then Chelsea away, and then they finish off against potentially their top four rival Spurs. And that one is at the King Power. Of course, alongside all of that, you're on FA Cup final with Chelsea thrown in as well. What are their prospects against uh, Newcastle? Uh, Steve Bruce, since he became Newcastle manager, has lost all three meetings with Leicester and conceded 10 goals. So good. That's what I'm picking up from that.
3: I mean... I- I can't speak for everyone, but I'd really, really like Leicester to finish in the top four and get into the Champions League, given all the events of the last month or so. So, yeah, I mean, this is huge this game. If they win this, they can probably afford to drop at least four or five points, I reckon, in their in their tricky final three. But if if they don't, then it's looking like a, a repeat of last year when they completely fell away. And it was sad.
2: what well, we shall see. OK, more of the Premier League's games and that. And, of course, the quiz
0: you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com
1: slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Patty Power. Women's Super League title race will be decided
2: this weekend. Chelsea, them again. Uh, Two points clear of the WSL with one game to go after beating Spurs 2-0 on Wednesday. A brace there from Sam Kerr. Chelsea are fighting it out with City for the title. Last day of the season is Sunday. Chelsea has Reading. Man City travel to West Ham. Michael.
4: Yeah, you'd expect Chelsea to beat Reading. The only funny thing is that Reading are probably better without the ball than they are with it. And they're the, one of these teams who they kind of make life difficult for the big teams more effectively than they beat the teams around them in the table. So maybe that will be a slight issue. Um, and Chelsea have got a lot of fixtures. I mean, obviously the midweek fixture, they've had the two Champions League semi-final legs. So maybe there's a bit of tiredness, but you'd have to say Chelsea are very strong favourites to wrap up the league and it would almost feel a bit weird if they didn't because they are just quite obviously the best team in the league this year
2: i'm going for the quintuple if you include the community shield also wrapping up this weekend is the championship duncan's uh most surprising tier where we will find out if Wickham can pull out the 10 or 11 nil win they need to avoid relegation who are you playing duncan
3: Uh, Well, we've got to go to Middlesbrough and get something, which is quite nice, given it's 25 years (laughs) since uh, Keegan. Um, With Sheffield Wednesday playing Derby, who we Mm. need to overcome both of those, we need a a low-scoring Sheffield Wednesday win, and then Wickham probably need to win by at least 12 goals.
4: Okay,
2: Has that happened before?
3: Yeah, not since the 1920s or something, so it doesn't seem likely. But to be honest, if you'd have told me in those heady July days last year when Wickham got promoted to the Championship, that we still wouldn't technically be down with one game to go. I'd have been extremely surprised. So I think that's a, it's a minor triumph, really.
2: OK, that's a nice positive attitude to have. As you mentioned, uh, Wayne Rooney's Derby County with that huge relegation playoff with Sheffield Wednesday also on this final weekend. Uh, could also be the weekend that the Championship finds out for certain who will be joining them from the Premier League... Uh, Fulham against Burnley on Monday night could seal the fate of the Cottagers. They're nine points from safety. West Brom who are ten points off. Will be facing Arsenal on Sunday. Uh, if if they do both go down in this round of action, this will be the earliest that all three relegation places have been decided in a Premier League season after 35 rounds. Effectively, it's it's not a season that's been known for kind of quality throughout. I think a lot of people would say that it's been quite a mediocre season in terms of teams' performances. So how bad are these three then, that they have been far and away the worst three and able to be confirmed as going down so early?
3: They're not the worst teams ever, but I think you could combine a good team out of the three relegated teams or that look like they're going down. I mean, Sheffield United are pretty resolute. They've obviously lost set a new Premier League record for defeats by a single goal. Um, West Brom, surprisingly, recently have been pretty good going forward and Fulham have been largely defensively secure for most of the season which again is not typical of Fulham when they come up and and go back down but it just you know they've kind of been hamstrung slightly that I think the two other teams that were their rivals Newcastle and Brighton both do have weaknesses but they also have strengths know, Newcastle can pick up wins with you know like St Maximan changing a game and, and Brighton as we've discussed at length are a much better team than their league position would suggest. So I just think that the, the rest of the league was was too good for the, the three that went down, or will be going down.
2: Right, which is how you'd want it. Uh, if, yeah. If they go down. West Brom, uh, as we say, Sunday against Arsenal, which is neat because it was Big Sam who'd said that Arsenal were in a relegation battle. Do you remember early in the season when they were struggling a bit?
3: Also, Arsenal fans have had long-standing issues with, with Big Sam, and obviously mm. he's had this moniker of the manager that's never relegated from the premier league well i think if he does it at arsenal then that that's a bittersweet moment for uh for arsenal fans i mean it's weird this game you remember the reverse fixture was a pretty good game it was in like driving snow at the hawthorns which probably will happen again looking at the weather this week yeah. so um but yeah i mean it's going to be funny to see how sam spins it i mean i'm I wouldn't rule out him resigning on 85 minutes if they're like two goals down, just to say that technically <laughs> he was not manager when they went they got relegated.
2: Another good reason to keep an eye on Arsenal-West Brom on Sunday evening. Uh, elsewhere this weekend, then Wolves take on Brighton. That's Sunday midday. Sheffield United, who are already down, will be hosting Crystal Palace Saturday at three o'clock and Sunday at five past two is Aston Villa Man United or at least it's scheduled to be but we'll see we'll see because there has been the threat of further action fun fact by the way about Aston Villa and Man United Villa haven't beaten United at Villa Park since the opening day of the 95-96 season and you know what that led to
1: you win nothing with kids the trick is always buy when you're strong so he needs to buy players you can't win anything with kids
2: That evening, on Match of the Day, Alan Hansen making that immortal pronouncement. And over the last decade, Villa have taken two points from 14 meetings with Man United. They've also got a game, Man United, of course, on Thursday, when the clash that got postponed because of the fan demonstration at Old Trafford last Sunday has been rescheduled, meaning they've got a pretty interesting run of games. Four matches in eight days, with a game against Leicester on Tuesday... And then this Liverpool game on Thursday within less than 50 hours of each other. Crikey.
3: I mean, it reminds me, I think I've said this before, but it reminds me of the time quite a while ago where AC Milan rang up Opta to say, um, we've got a game on Sunday, then another one on Tuesday, and then one on Friday. Is this a world record? And we were like, no. But you know, there's various <laughs> examples of teams playing for like six days in a row in the, in the old days and stuff.
2: What about two games in a day?
3: The Mark Hughes well, special. Mark Hughes, yeah, he played too, didn't he? So, mm. but I mean, the, remember when United beat Arsenal eight two at Old Trafford, and it, everyone suddenly remembered that Arsenal's biggest defeat um, was against Loughborough in the league back in the nineteenth century. But they actually played two games that day; they were in an FA Cup match uh, and a league game, and I think they. Probably played the weaker team in the league match and hence lost to sports science icons Loughborough. But, um, (laughs) yeah, it's pretty rare. All
2: right. Uh, By the way, having mentioned that demonstration last Sunday, uh, interesting to hear that Chelsea have said that from the 1st of July they will have three supporter advisers attending board meetings to ensure general supporter sentiment is considered as part of the club's decision-making process. These supporter advisors will be picked through an election and selection process. Obviously, there's a lot of kind of vague terms there and not sure how much this will be, to borrow Daniel story's expression, a performative, but that sounds a positive move.
3: Well, surely that if you go back a few months, any Chelsea supporters would have recommended the club not getting rid of Frank Lampard and, and not getting Thomas Tuchel in, so... Careful what you wish for. for. Could this
5: be the end of Chelsea's success? You'll finally get (laughs) fan representation on the boards and they'll they'll spoil all of Roman's carefully laid chaotic plans.
2: I mean, I think fan representation is something that we all welcome, but not in our own business, no? It's great for other industries to contemplate it, but, for example, were we to have a a listener, with all due respect to you, listener, taking part in our copious pre-show planning meetings, then actually that would be great. Let us know when you're free. <laughs> uh, OK, listener, you've been hanging on this far for the InterTotally semi-final. Let's do that next. The
0: InterTotally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy's offers are at full capacity. Get a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus-fold acca lets you down on all football matches and markets. t and 18plus.
2: It's the InterTotally Cup, everybody. And we've also reached our semi-finals... Next week we'll be enjoying Julian Laurence against Benji Lanyardo. Call cool that one if you dare. Today though we got another very special cross-continental showdown. Let's meet the contestants.
4: One more time.
1: Up first. He is our defending champion. He's been practising the four demands of Hulkamania by training, eating his vitamins, saying his prayers and believing in himself. He is never knowingly underquizzed because he is Michael Cox. He is Michael Cox and he
2: is the reigning champion. Michael, here we are again in the semi-finals.
4: Yeah, looking forward to it. Six-question format, I I gather, which has obviously affected my tactical preparations. But uh, Yeah. Are you? A, I know
2: that you 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 eat, breathe, sleep quizzes. But are you a little bit nervous about this? A lot riding on it.
4: Yeah, I, I mean to be honest, when we did this last year, I thought Sasha was the strongest uh, candidate. I, I, did he go out in the first round last year? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. are let me down. Yeah, I think this. I think this is the toughest, um, toughest game I've had so far. Definitely
2: all right well we haven't actually introduced Sasha yet so we'll talk about that in a second or two let me just say uh you've beaten Tom and then Matt to get this far as you know if you win you go to the final you also win another 10 pounds which Paddy Power will place on the bet of your choice. winning is going to charity what is your charity and wager
4: um I'm with Sparkle uh, who help orphans in uh, Malawi The bet went quite well last time. I went for Sheffield United to win against Brighton, which was a bit of a random one, but it worked. Uh, This time, another slightly outside bet, but I'm going for Wren to beat PSG because Wren are in good form. And PSG, I thought the way that they ended that Champions League game, maybe uh, will carry over into their weekend encounter.
2: All right. It's not like PSG to lose their heads like that, but I know what you mean. Well we'll, well, we'll tally up your winnings so far at the end of the, the competition, but right now, let's meet your opponent.
1: And his opponent. He is the ra ra Rasputin of the Intertotally and refuses to be beaten. From Liverpool, via Leningrad, he is the cold warrior, Sasha Gourianov.
2: Sasha Gurinov, welcome. Hi, James. Great to be here. Yeah, you, you took your time coming on, actually. There was a, we were kind of sat around, listener, just waiting for Sasha's connect. Was that, was that a little bit of kind of pre-tactic, Sasha?
1: Um, uh, No, I was just uh, running around the house uh, trying to calm down. Uh, right, obviously so pumped and so excited here, yeah, putting the bins out. Mm. I must say, though, I haven't had much of a turnaround time. It's like... Uh, Play, playing a bit like a team in Europe. Um, so I had the game on Sunday, uh, yep. rest day Monday, flight training on Tuesday, and here I am again.
2: Right, and it was so very, very tight, the uh, the game on Sunday, when you, you defeated Duncan on a tie-break with the your knowledge of the attendance at the Maracanã.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, staring at Wikipedia for four hours, that helps.
2: Okay. Uh, you are the top-scoring player left in the competition with eight correct answers out of ten questions so far which very much uh, speaks to what michael was suggesting that you are perhaps the most dangerous possible adversary let's find out how dangerous very shortly but just before i get onto the questions what's your charity and wager
1: uh, it's Battersea dogs and cats uh, and the wager is uh, might actually work this time brentford to go up
2: all right let's get our questions on michael you're first here comes question one before Real Madrid won three in a row in 2016, 2017, and 2018, who was the last team to retain the Champions
4: League or European Cup? My um, first thought is Milan. Can't think anyone did it after them. So, yeah, Milan.
2: Is correct, in eighty nine and 1990. Question two. With which countries, with which two countries, has the aforementioned Herve Renard won the Africa Cup of Nations?
4: Uh, Zambia. And it was one of the big ones. I think Ivory Coast.
2: Oh, my goodness. He's correct. Wow. Question three. Which competition have Johan Cruyff, Sven-Jurin Eriksson, Otto Rehhagel, Alex Ferguson and Giovanni Trapattoni all won as managers? They've all won this competition. Johan Cruyff, Sven-Jurin Eriksson, Otto Rehagel, Sir Alex Ferguson and Giovanni Trapattoni.
4: It's quite a hard question, isn't it? Um... Guess it must be the Cup Winners' Cup?
2: You and your guesses, Michael. That is correct. Three out of three so far. On to question four. What is the next stadium in this sequence? The Camp Nou in Barcelona. The Ataturk Stadium in Istanbul. The Luzhniki Stadium in Moscow. The Allianz Arena in Munich. And what's next in that sequence?
4: Could have them again?
2: Of course. The Camp Nou in Barcelona. The Ataturk in Istanbul. The Luzhniki in Moscow and the Allianz Arena in Munich. What links those stadiums and what would be the next venue in that sequence?
4: So it's English Champions League successors. Um, the, so that would be Liverpool. They've won it in... Ukraine.
2: Michael, they won it at the Wanda Metropolitano.
4: Ah, they lost it in Ukraine, didn't they? Lost it in Ukraine. Stupid.
2: Have you lost it on question four? Let's find out (laughs) as we move to question five, which is which England manager first named David Beckham as captain? Uh, Peter Taylor? is correct. Straight back up the other end and in the back of the net. Question six then. This is the new feature of this semi-final, a sixth question. Three Premier League clubs have appeared in the Champions League proper, not qualifiers, but the actual body of the tournament, in just one season and one season only. Leicester City and Blackburn are two, but who are the other ones? Three Premier League sides who've been in the Champions League only once, not including qualifiers. Apart from Leicester City and Blackburn, who is the other team to do it?
4: First thought is Newcastle. Um, but I feel like they've probably been in it more than once. Yeah, I'll go for Newcastle. It's Leeds United, Michael. Yeah, oh, silly guess. Yeah, silly guess.
2: So there you oh, go. Well. Four out of six. How do you feel about that?
4: Annoyed, really annoyed with the um, Liverpool one. Mm.
2: I mean, credit the for Ukraine. working out the connection, but yes.
4: Yeah, that's the pain. Was that Cox's Loris Carius moment,
5: perhaps?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out as we see how many correct answers Sasha Gurinov can give us from his six questions. So here they come. Question one, Sasha Which two English clubs have retained the European Cup or Champions League?
1: Uh, Liverpool and Forest.
2: Is correct. Question two Which country has won the Africa Cup of Nations the most times? Egypt is correct question 3 which competition have Pep Guardiola Neymar Nwanko Kanu Dimitri Karin and Lionel Messi all won as players so Kanu Neymar Guardiola Messi and Dimitri Karin oh The Olympics. Is correct, you saucy thing. Question four. What is the Estadio Jornalista Mario Filio, better known as? Oh, it's the Marcana, no? It is. You're level with Michael. This, for a place in the final question five which team was David Beckham playing against when he injured his metatarsal putting his participation in the 2002 World Cup in doubt Turkey no he was playing for Man United against Deportivo La Coruña yeah Sasha this next question to avoid a tiebreaker and go through question six which Spanish team has only appeared in the Champions League proper once but reached the quarterfinals in that one season
1: so Spanish team once and reached the quarter-final.
6: Hmm.
1: No, none of these. So we're talking last 30 years. Reached quarter-final, Betis did rubbish when they were in Liverpool's group.
2: Your series is very slow today, I must say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let me try to think. Um... So I'm trying, I'm trying, sort of, to picture the Spanish league table uh-huh. and see who's in there. So, Depor have been there a few times. And right, I went down.
2: Might, might have to hurry you down. along, Sasha. There's a lot of quarter teams finals. you could name.
1: Quarterfinals, quarterfinals, in the one appearance.
2: Do you have an answer for us, Sasha?
1: <sighs> Villarreal. It's
2: incorrect. That. It's Malaga.
6: Oh no, I wasn't getting that.
2: No. Okay, then.
6: Okay.
5: Oh, what drama.
2: Yeah. What drama? Drama spelt T I E dash breaker. hmm. 32 teams. Here's your question. Are you ready, Michael? Are you ready, Sasha? Nearest answer texted to me will earn that place in the final. 32 teams competed in the 2019 2020 Champions League proper. That's from the group stages on, playing in total 119 games. How many goals were scored in those matches?
1: Ah. Okay, I'm going to send it now.
2: Okay, and the answers are in. Michael Cox has gone for 377, Sasha Gurionov has gone for 345. The answer, the total number of goals scored in those 119 matches in the 2019-2020 Champions League season is 386. Michael, you're in the final.
4: Phew, that was, that was nerve-wracking.
2: It certainly was. I mean, it was for all of us, but particularly for you. Sasha, you came so very, very close again.
4: Yeah, those last
1: two uh, questions in the round, um, I yeah, I, couldn't re- I didn't really know them. I was trying to work them out, but
2: Once again, Michael, you were able to find the answers even when you didn't know them. It's singular, your ability to conjure up the facts.
4: Yeah, and yet missed that Liverpool one, which seems quite obvious, because I, I know that they played Spurs in Metropolitano. Weirdly, my, my first thought of Liverpool in a Champions League final was a video of a lot of their fans singing along to Dua Lipa and I was trying to work out what venue Dua Lipa was in. No, um, that was in was, Kiev, was, yeah. Yeah, which seems a strange go-to one rather than, you know, the first-minute penalty. But, uh, yeah, good good questions, I must say. Enjoyed it.
2: OK, well, we'll find out next week if you're going to be facing Julian Lerons or Benji Laniardo. Any preference?
4: Um, Benji, Benji looks very strong, I must say. So... Um, yeah, I think he's the he's the the favourite. I would say.
2: Okay, well, we'll see how he gets on against a Parisian in a semi final, which doesn't bode well for Julian Aron's <laughs> so that's coming up. In totally football show next week. Sasha, thank you so much for being with us and congratulations on a terrific performance to reach this semi final. We'll see you again soon.
1: Woo and indeed who, Coxy? We'll see you once again in the final of the Inter Totally Cup. And if Michael's bet that runs, or is it wrong? We'll be PSG this weekend. It's the sort of thing you want in onto. It's priced at 17 to 5 at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Odds are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. And please, please, please gamble responsibly. And
2: that brings us to the end of today's Totally Football show. We return on Monday morning with our reaction to all the weekend and that. So do hope you'll be joining us uh, then. There's loads of other Totally out there at the moment. You've got the Offside Royal WSL edition, which will be counting down to the season finale. Also, of course, the Totally Football League show counting down to the end of the championship and so much more. For now, many thanks to Michael and Sasha and Tom and Duncan and James Horncastle earlier on and producer Charlie and you, listener.
1: Yes, you. We'll see you Monday. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network.